Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, if you remain standing, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to James chapter 5. As we are winding down our study in the book of James, James chapter 5, our text for this morning and for next week as well. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. So James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. If you'll follow along now as I read our text, beginning in chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at chapter 5, verse 12, in which James uh, began to close his letter. And you'll remember the verse 12 is, is both a bridge to the final section of his letter, and it's a final example of the worldliness that's to be avoided. In verse 12, James brought the discussion of how worldliness manifests itself in the lives of a believers or of believers to a conclusion with the command. Do not swear, referring, of course, to the swearing of oaths. James wanted his readers to know such oath-taking is unnecessary among Christians because our speech and everyday conversation is always to be honest and trustworthy. And now as we come to the final section of James' letter, he gives instruction concerning prayer in verses 13 to 18. And then a closing appeal for those who are wandering from the faith in verses 19 and 20. The theme of verses 13 to 18 is the place and the power of prayer in the believer's life. And every verse in this paragraph contains a clear reference to prayer. And this is such a fitting conclusion to a letter whose dominant theme is that a true and living faith works practically in one's life. That is, true faith is a faith that works because faith without works is dead. It's non-existent. I mean, genuine faith is not merely an intellectual belief. Rather, it is living and active. It affects the way you live. It'll be made evident by the fruit of our lives. A true and living faith, as we learned, will manifest itself in good works and in what we do. It will manifest itself in our speech, in what we say, and also in the wisdom that we possess and practice. And now James appropriately brings his test of a living faith to a conclusion by teaching us now that a true faith also manifests itself in a vital relationship with God through prayer and all the experiences of life. As one man said, through prayer, the believer habitually lays hold of God's power for victory amid all the diverse experiences of life. Prayer not only reflects an attitude of genuine faith, it also reveals a humble, trusting, dependent heart. It also reflects 
reveals a, a patient endurance as we turn to God to handle life's struggles in his timing and according to his word and his will. And prayer then is a mark of authentic faith. And James practiced what he preached. And James was a man of prayer. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Eusebius, quoted a, an ancient tradition that says that James spent so much time on his knees in prayer that his knees became hard as a camel's, and therefore he was nicknamed Old Camel Knees. He was a man of prayer. I doubt many of us have spent so much time in prayer on our knees that we have big calluses uh, from it. But James did. He was a man of prayer. And James begins by commanding prayer for three situations. And of course, uh, as we know, the Bible teaches us to pray continually and faithfully at all times. But James addresses three particular occasions that call for prayer. And those are suffering and cheerfulness in verse 13 and sickness in verses 14 and 15. This morning... So this morning, let's, let's look now at, at verse 13. Let's begin there where James refers to two ends on the spectrum of life, suffering and cheerfulness. Look at verse 13. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And I want you to notice the words, among you. That phrase, among you, appears twice in verses 13 to 15. The phrase, one another, appears twice in verses 16 to 18. And the phrase, among you, uh, appears again only once, though, in verses 19 and 20. You say, okay, well, what's the point? Well, the point is simply this, that all of this is a reminder that individual believers do not exist in isolation because we are members of a body that supports one another. So James is speaking to the body of Christ. He's speaking to the church, and he asks, is anyone, is any believer among you suffering? And the word anyone makes this an individual matter in the sense that no one can be a stand-in for you or I when it comes to suffering. No one can decide how you or I are going to handle it. No one can decide how you or I are are going to respond to suffering. You and I alone make the choice of how we're going to respond to life's trials and troubles. I mean, the issue is between us and God. Is anyone among you suffering? And this word suffering means to suffer misfortune. It's a broad term that speaks not of physical illness, but any form of external or internal hardship, misfortune, or calamity. It speaks of experiencing various trials, hardships, difficult circumstances, and distresses. They can be personal, financial, spiritual, or religious. They can be mental and emotional. It could could include discouragement, doubt, or anxiety. It could include financial hardship, relationship conflicts, enduring evil treatment by people, being persecuted, abused, and and treated wickedly, as some of James' readers uh, were being treated. And this word is used two other times in the New Testament. Paul used it for his suffering when he was treated like a criminal and chained in prison in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's also used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, when Paul exhorted Timothy to endure suffering in his ministry. And James actually uses a different form of the word, a noun form of the word, in, in chapter 5, verse 10, to describe the suffering of the Old Testament prophets. And so basically, as one man said, in short, this word suffering includes anything that causes trouble. And I know it might be a surprise to some of you, but (laughs) the Christian doesn't always live on a mountaintop of faith. The simple facts of life are that from time to time, the believer experiences trouble, sometimes severe. Believers experience suffering. And of course, we should expect it because our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrow. No Christian is immune from trouble. 
I know that there are churches and, and men who teach otherwise, but that's not true. Only a quick glance through the New Testament tells us this. I mean, no Christian is immune from trouble. Tall, uh, Paul taught believers that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God in Acts 14. James began this very letter with the words, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. And so you and I and every other believer will suffer in this life. Why? Well, first of all, we share in all of the common sufferings of the world. Things like wars, earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, famines, pestilence, and mortality. But as Christians, we have additional, or you could say, special sufferings. And I say that because the world that hated Jesus is going to hate those who are like him. And the only way to avoid that is to keep silent about your faith, you know, to be a, a secret disciple. The man or woman who is determined to live for God, the man or woman who is determined to set their face against the world, to live their lives for the sake of the gospel and the spread of the gospel, those people are going to experience these special sufferings. And the Apostle Paul made this very clear when he said to Timothy, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. And if this is true, and it is, you know, if there is special suffering that comes to the Christian, then we have to also go one step further and say that there is extra special suffering that comes to the man who would dare to enter the pulpit to be a spokesman for God. And so the point is simply that Christians will find themselves in trials, troubles, and sufferings of many kinds. And I want you to remember that James is writing to Jewish believers who had fled fierce persecution, and they were still suffering hardship from the pagans around them. So those he was speaking to uh, may have been among the poor in in chapter 2 who were without proper food and clothing. They may have been those in chapter 4 who were being slandered and judged by the poisonous tongues of worldly Christians. They may have been uh, the poor laborers in chapter 5 being cheated out of their wages by the rich. So many of them understood sufferings. And what should we do? What should a Christian do then when when we find ourselves in such trying circumstances? What do we do when, when we find ourselves right in the middle of such suffering? Well, we're not to worry. We're not to grumble. We're not to complain. We're not to be critical of other believers who seem to be having an easier time of it. We're certainly not to blame the Lord. So what do we do? Well, whatever the cause of their suffering, whatever the cause of our suffering, look what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? What does he say? Let him pray. And then in the original Greek, this is just one word. Is anyone among you suffering? Pray. And this word pray is significant because it is always used in a religious sense. It is always, it it always refers to prayer that is directed to God. And of course, we're instructed all through the scriptures to pray. Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peter tells us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. David, King David, is a great example of of calling out to the Lord in, in, in trouble. In Psalm 18.6, David said, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And and that entire psalm 
is just a glorious affirmation that God is personally and practically involved in the troubles of his people. And the present tense of this verb translated pray suggests a continual pleading with God in prayer. And it could be translated, let him keep on praying. And of course, Paul exhorts us to pray at all times. I mean, prayer is the vital link that keeps us in touch with the founder and perfecter of our faith, according to Hebrews 12. And there is no time when God does not invite us to come to himself. I mean, no wonder James' exhortation to the Christian who is suffering or facing trouble of any kind is so direct. No, let him pray. Let him pray. Now, we tend to think that it's natural to pray in the time of trouble. But that's not always the case. And when our lives are unraveling, when pain increases, when worry overcomes us, when things spin out of control, we as believers will finally turn to God in prayer. But often it's as a last resort. Often it's after we've done everything that we can do to try to fix the problem, only finding that we've made it worse. You know, we scheme, we connive, we plan, we we work hard, and then maybe we remember to pray. But James is clear, prayer is the solution to the problem. So we must start with prayer. Why? Well, because prayer acknowledges that we are totally dependent on God. I mean, prayer admits, Lord, I I can't even draw my next breath without you. Lord, if if you don't work for, for your purpose and glory, my best, my most competent efforts are going to do nothing but fail. As one man said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you shouldn't do anything until you have prayed. And the lesson in all of this is that in the sufferings, trials, and difficulties of life, prayer should be the Christian's first resort. And it's easy to to sit here and nod in agreement, but the question is, when you encounter difficulties, When you find yourself in the midst of suffering, is prayer always your first response? You know, when you get into a conflict with your wife or children, do you shoot up a prayer for wisdom and a godly attitude? Or do you fight it out for a while before you decide to pray? When you face a problem at work, you know, do you silently send up one of those Nehemiah prayers You know, remember when when he talked with King Artaxerxes about his request to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in between the kings, asking him what he wanted and his response, Nehemiah said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And this had to take place in just a few seconds, so it couldn't have been more than a quick Lord help now kind of a prayer. But it shows that Nehemiah's knee-jerk response was to pray. When you need to make a a major purchase or you face financial difficulties, you pray for wisdom to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you. You know, when you need to make or when you want to make a major move of some kind, do you pray for wisdom that God would guide and direct you according to his word and his will? And I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. In every situation of life, God sends problems and difficulties so that we'll learn to depend on him in prayer. And you'll notice James doesn't tell us what to pray. He's not not suggesting the only kind of prayer is for deliverance. But when we are suffering, sometimes the most appropriate prayer is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And sometimes that's all we can say. It's also appropriate to pray for grace and strength to endure and and to endure with joy and for a godly attitude through the pain. I mean, certainly prayer can remove our suffering and difficulties if that's God's will. 
But prayer can give us the, the grace we need to endure troubles and, and use them to accomplish God's perfect will. Another appropriate prayer in times of suffering is, Lord, what are you saying to me through these difficulties? Father, what is it that you want me to learn or what do you wish for me to do? And we should also pray that God would use the crisis for his purpose and, and for his glory. Because we know that he uses all things for our good. We should be praying it will be used for his purpose and his glory. And that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in our lives and in the lives of everyone involved as a result of this. But even though we pray, it doesn't mean that God is going to immediately bring the suffering to an end. And he never promises to bring instant relief. He does sometimes. But that's all according to his plan and purpose. That's all according to his will and his timing. So he never promises to bring instant relief, but he does promise to provide grace and strength to persevere. When suffering comes our way, we need divine wisdom. And we learned in James that uh, if we need wisdom, we can pray to God knowing that he will give it to us without reprimanding us. I mean, suffering and and adversity should draw us toward God. And prayer should be our first response. I mean, you remember the the words to the hymn, uh, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And prayer is, for the child of God, prayer is a high and a holy privilege. I mean, to think that as children of God, we can come freely and boldly right to his very throne, taking everything to the Lord in prayer, knowing that there at the throne of grace, we will find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. I mean, what a blessing that we can cast all of our cares and and needs upon him. I mean, what a blessing and what an encouragement it is to know that God is looking, God is listening, and God does deliver his people from their troubles. He blesses them, guides them, strengthens them, and comforts them. So James' instruction to Christians who are suffering or facing trouble of any kind is very direct. Let him pray. We were to pray and to make it a constant practice to take our concerns to God, which is a mark of spiritual maturity and evidence of a true and living faith. And James now, in the rest of verse 13, gives us the other side of the coin. We go now from suffering to cheerfulness. Look back at verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? You say, well, not after hearing about suffering. <laughs> Is anyone cheerful, he says? Let him sing praise. And this this question directs our attention to another experience of life. And the word translated here as cheerful means being in good spirits or having a joyful attitude. It refers to a spirit of calm, joyful optimism or a a deep inner sense of well-being. It it doesn't necessarily mean to be trouble-free or that all is going well on the outside, but but it means to be cheerful in good spirits, having a joyful attitude and with a sense of well inner sense of well-being, whatever the outward circumstances may be. And the only other use of this word in the New Testament is in Acts 27, where Paul was encouraging his companions to take heart or to be cheerful before their shipwreck on Malta. I mean, Paul there was in difficult circumstances, to say the least, yet he had a deep inner sense of joy that was rooted in an unshakable faith in God. Is anyone cheerful? James asked. And remember, The believers James was writing to were experiencing persecution and oppression, so they understood what it meant to live in difficult times. But in spite of this, some of them were inwardly joyful. They were in good spirits in spite of their external circumstances. I mean, they they were feeling confident and optimistic because of their faith in Christ. 
I read about a man, I'd never heard of him before, I read about a man named Lachlan McKenzie. And he was a key figure in the spiritual revival which came to the Scottish Highlands in the late 18th century. And it's said of him that he made much of the joys of the Christian life. And the title of his life and works is The Happy Man. And someone said this of him. He was a living testimony that religion can render a man happy. And McKinsey would say that it is a great part of the Christian's privilege to make himself and others happy. He once described the the happy man, the Christian, in these words. Happy is the life of that man who believes firmly, prays fervently, walks patiently, works abundantly, lives holy, dies daily, watches his heart, guides his senses, redeems his time, loves Christ, and longs for glory. That's the cheerful man, the happy man, as Lachlan McKenzie would say. And certainly there's a lesson for us here. You know, it it is a great lie of the enemy that the Christian life is meant to be something that is miserable and gloomy and joyless and dull and boring. And the Christian life certainly is not funny because the issues are, are far too serious for that. But the Christian life should be joyful and, and happy. I mean, the Bible says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy and that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I mean, sure, life, life, life has, does have its pressures, a lot of pressures, a lot of difficulties. There's plenty of suffering. And the Bible never hides that fact and actually warns us of just the opposite. But at the same time, the Bible also tells us that these things should never crush the joy from the Christian's heart. We always have reason to rejoice. And so what does James instruct the cheerful to do? Look back at the verse. Let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. It's four words in the English, but in the original Greek, it's only one word, salo. We get our English word psalm from this word. So is anyone cheerful? James says psalm. (laughs) And that word originally meant to pluck or play the harp, and then it came to mean to sing to the music of a harp. And in the New Testament, the term simply means to sing with or without musical accompaniment. And so the term includes any kind of of sacred song. So So it literally means sing psalms, you know, sing hymns, sing songs of praise. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, and Ephesians 5, 19, Paul uses this word of singing praise to God in public worship. But here the reference uh, apparently is to the individual expression of praise and singing. This is what we are to do, not only corporately, but as individuals as well. And James, again, uses the present tense, which indicates that singing praises to God is to be the believer's continual practice. It's said of Martin Luther, when he heard any bad news, he used to say, come, let us sing a psalm and spite the devil. (laughs) In bad news or good news, we should sing praises to the Lord. And so James says, if you're cheerful, if you have an inner sense of well-being, a joyful attitude, regardless of what's going on around you, then sing. Sing, he says. Continually praise God with songs. And that same counsel is given all through the scriptures. David said in, in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 10, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And of course, the Psalms are just full of exhortations to praise God with words like these. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. That's Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. 
The early church was a singing church. And after the ascension, we're told the disciples worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God or praising God. I mean, joyful singing is meant to be a, a continuing characteristic of, of church life. I mean, Paul's letter to the Colossians included this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In the book of Acts, Paul and Silas were singing at midnight in the Philippian dungeon. Why? Well, because they knew that Philippi was responding to the gospel, that that the Gentile world, Greece, and then Europe would fall before Christ, and they were so happy in that stinking jail, even with the injustice they had experienced and the pain of their bleeding backs throbbing away, yet they sang songs of praise. And that is exactly what James is exhorting here. He's talking about the song only those who have been set free from sin and death by the power of gospel can sing whatever their circumstances may be. Because we and we alone have every reason to sing. And it ought to be the most natural thing in the world for Christians when things are going well and they're cheerful, joyful, happy to be thinking of the Lord and and wanting to express that and singing praises to him. And I know that this is not the most profound statement in the Word of God. But it certainly goes against the grain of of the world's thinking. And it certainly challenges the practice of many who profess to be Christians today. Because people in general, not excluding many who call themselves Christians, they don't feel a need need of God when, when things are going well. But that's the way of sinners, isn't it? You know, until we're afflicted, we go astray. Until we're afflicted, we go astray, and and the claims of Christ don't even cross our minds. I mean, generally speaking, the Christian faith is largely thought of and, and used as a crutch for difficult times. I mean, why is it that churches are filled when terrorist bombs are going off or they're crashing planes into buildings? But on the other hand, peace and prosperity and well-being, they don't draw our attention to the claims of Christ. When the world is suffering, it might turn to God out of fear and uncertainty And of course, that has been the means of many coming to faith in Christ, and we we thank God for that. But when the world is happy, when things are prospering, when things are going well, it doesn't celebrate God's goodness. Oh, it, it has a party, but it celebrates itself and all the great things that it has done. And there's no thought of God at all. I mean, one of the marks of the ungodly, Paul lists in Romans chapter 1, is the fact that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. A life void of of praise and thanksgiving is the the sure mark of an unbeliever. Because they refuse to praise and thank God. They see no reason to. But if that's the mark of the unbeliever, and it is, then praise is the mark of the believer. And James' point is that the Christian's joy and and happiness are just as much a cause for coming to the Lord as our sorrows and troubles. I mean, we always have something to praise Him for. We ought to, to bless the Lord at all times. His praise is to continually be on our lips. And the Christian gladly and gratefully acknowledges that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. And as one man said, the believer recognizes that every new mercy calls for a new song. And that's exactly right. Each of us as individual Christians has something glorious to sing about. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 40 verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
mean, loved ones, listen, a day should never go by in, in the life of a Christian that he doesn't lift his heart and voice in joyful praise to God for who he is and what he is, for all of his greatness, goodness, and kindness toward us who deserve nothing but his wrath and judgment. I mean, no wonder David cries out, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As someone has rightly said, it is amazing that man is not always praising God since everything around him invites praise. Well, to sum it up, James is telling us that no matter what life brings our way, whether suffering or cheerfulness, all of life should be lived with a Godward, God-dependent focus. In times of suffering, we're to pray. In times of joy and happiness, we're to praise. And as Christians, we should naturally turn toward God in every situation of life. As one commentator said, our whole life, as we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into his presence. We have a God for all seasons. And that's true, isn't it? And we should say, Amen. (laughs) And now James addresses the third occasion that calls for prayer in verses 14 and 15. Look at those two verses. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, before we move on and actually get into the verses, there are some things that that need to be said. First of all, it is important to note that these verses are the most difficult passages in James to interpret and apply correctly. It is also one of the most controversial passages in the book of James. And as such, this text has been the object of a lot of discussion and a lot of ink has been spilt on this over the centuries. And so we need to begin by considering what this text is not teaching what this text is not teaching. First of all, this text is not teaching about a gift of healing. Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts of healing, and please notice the plural. Paul speaks of the spiritual gifts of healing in his list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and he does so three times in 1 Corinthians 12. Outside of that, we do not find a gift of healing mentioned in the other lists of spiritual gifts. I mean, this gift has been categorized as part of the sign gifts or miraculous gifts that were of particular importance in the early stages of the spread of Christianity. And so uh, much of conservative scholarship today would say that with the completion of the canon of New Testament Scripture, there is less of a need for such miraculous displays. And so these gifts either have disappeared from the normal framework of Christianity or are only utilized in limited ways. But that is another subject for another day. But the point is simply that the gift, uh, the gift of healing or the gifts of healing is not in view here. Now obviously God can and does heal miraculously in every age when it is his will to do so. Secondly, James is not speaking about a healing service in the church. Now, there are some churches that have regular healing services. We are not instructed to do this in Scripture, nor is this text about that. Thirdly, James is not referring to any other kind of public healing session. There's no great production here. I mean, this is not a show. Rather, this is a private act. It is a time of prayer done in the privacy of the home of the infirm person or perhaps in their hospital room. So this is not referring to any other kind of public healing session. Fourthly, 
This text is appealed to by faith healers who claim that it is always God's will to heal. They claim this text guarantees physical healing, and if you aren't healed, you must not have prayed in faith. Now, this view is not only unbiblical and therefore false, it is extremely cruel. While God undoubtedly can and does heal people from sickness, it is clearly not always his will to do so. Fifth, along those same lines, there are others who claim that no Christian need ever be sick because there is complete physical healing in the atonement. And they suggest God intends that his people always enjoy perfect health and therefore they may claim it as a right. And they make this argument mainly from Matthew uh, chapter 8, uh, where the healing ministry of Jesus, it speaks of the healing ministry of Jesus being carried out to fulfill Isaiah's words that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, while it is certainly true that Jesus took upon himself the divine judgment of his people's sins, including the penalty of physical death, It clearly is not true that Christians have immediate and complete possession here and now of all of the benefits of his death. And so while it is true in a general sense that healing is in the atonement, not all the blessings that are in the atonement have been given to us yet and will not be in this life. I mean, for example... The redemption of the body was included in Christ's work for us, but we're not going to receive our glorified bodies until Christ comes for his saints. And at that time, we will also be freed from the very presence of sin and be completely and finally healed of all diseases, but not until then. And so this text in no way uh, is teaching complete physical healing in the atonement in this life. Number six. This text is applied to those who are part of the fellowship of a local church. It is not randomly applied to unbelievers or those outside the church fellowship. And so this text cannot be used to justify running around all over town and everywhere else looking for some stranger to heal. Number seven. The Roman Catholic Church has used this section as the basis for confession of sin to a priest and for its teaching on the sacrament of extreme unction, which is part of the last rites. And the last rites is the practice of a priest anointing with oil a person who is near death with with consecrated oil, and then he prays for the remission of their sins in preparation for their dying. And as a sacrament, this is said to convey divine grace to a person. But there is nothing about extreme unction or any of its practices in this text. The Roman Catholic sacrament is administered when the sick person is expected to die. I mean, to say nothing of it being unbiblical. It's administered when the sick person is expected to die, whereas in this text, James is speaking of someone being restored to health. I mean, there could not be a greater discrepancy. Number eight, James was not just concerned with the first century need. Sickness is an issue that all of humanity will will deal with for all of time until Christ returns. And the fact that he deals with this in a pastoral manner and gives instructions to the elders as the leaders of the church demonstrates that the instructions he gives here is for the church in any age. And with that in mind, we should note that this is the only place in the Bible where we are told how to seek healing. And this makes the passage very important and very instructive for us. However, we must also be careful because the Bible is not interested in giving us a formula for healing. God doesn't uh, want us to put our trust in any kind of a formula, but rather he wants us to put our faith and trust in him. And so those are the things that this text does not teach. 
And with all of that being said, it's also necessary to point out that a few commentators, most notably Ron Blue in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, John MacArthur, and Douglas Moo, he mentions a few more men in his commentary on James. These, a handful of commentators, argue that these verses are not talking about physical sickness and healing at all. Rather, they argue that the word sick should be translated weak and that it refers to spiritual weakness. Well, it is true that the word sick in verse 14 can also be translated weak, depicting those who are spiritually weak and immature. They also believe that the word James uses here for anoint refers not to any kind of ceremonial anointing, but rather to a more mundane, everyday anointing. And so they interpret the anointing uh, with oil to refer to the Jewish practice of using oil as James means of bestowing honor or refreshment, especially on guests. And so they interpret this as spiritual restoration and, and nothing to do with physical healing. I would disagree. And let me briefly address the reasons why. First of all, other than these few commentators, Almost all commentators and Bible translators understand this text to refer, to refer to physical healing and not spiritual restoration. Second, while the word anoint here is used of common anointing, it is also used of the disciples' ceremonial anointing of the sick in their healing ministry in Mark chapter 6. And so while I would agree that through prayer, elders should encourage and refresh those who are spiritually weak, it appears that that is not what this text means. Number three, when the word sick in verse 14 is used to refer to spiritual weakness, it is, that is made clear by some qualifiers such as weak in conscience in 1 Corinthians 8, or weak in faith, as in Romans chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Number four, in the Gospels, where James draws most of his vocabulary and theology, the word translated here as sick always means bodily illness, bodily sickness. And this word is used more for those who are physically ill than it is for those who are spiritually weak or immature. 20 of the 34 times this word is used, it means sick or physically ill. So the greater number refers to the sick or the physically ill. And this is the more common understanding of James' use of the word, and it seems to fit the context better. Now, this does not mean that the other application is not true, just that that is not the emphasis of James in this passage. Number five, every version of the Bible, every version of the Bible has chosen to translate the word as sick rather than weak. And since Jesus, the half-brother of James, always used the word in this way, well, I'm going to use the word as referring to sickness because that's what Jesus did. So let's go back now to verses 14 and 15. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James, once again, begins with a question that directs our attention to another experience of life. And he asks, is anyone, is any believer among you sick? And what if there is a believer who is seriously ill? What are you supposed to do? Well, you have to come back next Sunday to find out. Because <laughs> we'll never get through this today. So Lord willing, we'll all have to come back next Sunday. <laughs> and so these two situations, suffering and, and cheerful, I mean, it, it provides a, a strong contrast. And it was meant to do so by James because he meant it to cover all of the various emotional experiences of life. He meant it to run the gamut 
from, from suffering to cheerfulness and everything in between. And so James has a word for us. No matter what life brings our way, when things are bad, he tells us to pray. When things are good, he tells us to praise. But one commentator uh, said this. He suggested that the two commands might with equal truth be transposed. This is what he said. Is any among you suffering? Let him sing praise. Is any cheerful? Let him pray. Prayer should not merely be the plaintive cry of the sufferer. It is equally appropriate when exuberant feelings prevail. Songs of praise to God are suitable not only when the heart is glad, but also when trials and distress engulf us. A vital faith can both sing and pray whether the circumstances are sad or glad. And that's true. When as Christians, of those, as those who have been redeemed, those who have had our sins forgiven, been adopted into the family of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God. I mean, we should find ourselves naturally turning towards God in every situation of life. If we're suffering, then we need to see it as a call to prayer and a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord. If we're cheerful, then we need to lift up our voices singing praise to the Lord, glorifying and worshiping him for who he is and what he is and all that he has done and continues to do. I mean, all of life, every situation, every circumstance is an invitation for us to enter into God's presence and to know that the Lord, he is our God. Amen. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.